If you like your theology hot, caffeinated, and stimulating, pour yourself a second cup of your favorite beverage and sit down with me, Keith Giles, as we explore topics like hell, the second coming, biblical inerrancy, women in the Bible, deconstruction, penal substitution, and so much more in the brand new book, Second Cup with Keith. Now, it's inspired by my podcast of the same name, Second Cup with Keith, but in the book, we'll go even deeper into these topics and prepare to be inspired, surprised, and challenged on nearly every page as we tip every sacred cow and leave no theological stones unturned. Second Cup with Keith, Volume 1, the brand new book from Choir Publishing and Keith Giles, available now on Amazon. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the podcast. Pardon me while I flick my cat who is trying to <laughs> weasel his way into the screen. Stop it! <laughs> That's why that's why I closed my door. Well, I can't. He'll just sit outside the door and squawk because he's just little and he wants attention all the time. He's coming around. He'll he'll see you. I've named him Tom in honor of Grandpa, who called every cat he every ever cat. had Tom. Yeah, Tom Cat. Like, he had forty cats. They were all Tom Cat. Come here, Tom Cat. Yep. Anyway, welcome back to the podcast. That <laughs> is all about. Hey, what are you drinking tonight, John? And hey, look at this cat. That's the new subtitle of the podcast. This is not church. Hashtag, hey, look at this cat. So anyway, uh, this is not church, by the way, just in case you were confused. Um, this is not church because if it was church, you'd, uh, you'd, you'd be gone by now and uh, we'd, we'd understand completely. So, But this is the podcast where we discuss all kinds of things and have all kinds of interesting people. John and I being the least interesting people, usually. Most of the time. Most of the time, yeah. Most of the time. Most of the time. We try to highlight the, the, the uniqueness <laughs> of our guests. And today, man, we're just, man, I'm just, I'm just super, super, I'm super excited, John. Super. super. Oh, Lord have mercy. It's been a long day. But let me just, uh, let me just, uh, let me do this as, as unprofessionally as possible. Okay, let's do and, that. And uh, see if I can't read uh, the bio for our first, our first guest. Our first guest. <laughs> <Jesus. laughs> I'm going to just leave and come back in for our guest okay. tonight. All right. All right, here we go. Assistant Professor Nina Mahadev is an anthropologist with research, theoretical, and teaching expertise in the anthropology of religion, media, and ritual med- uh, meditations or mediations. Ooh, which one is it? Mediations? Second mediations. one? Mediations. All right, that makes sense to me. Political economy, pluralism, political theology, South Asia, and inter-Asian studies. She's carried out extensive field work in Sri Lanka and also in Singapore. She received her PhD in anthropology from Johns Hopkins University. Shout out to Johns Hopkins. An MA in social sciences from the University of Chicago and a BA in sociology slash anthropology from Carleton College. Dr. Mahadev serves on the editorial boards of the Journal of Global Buddhism and also for the new book series, New Directions in the Anthropology of Christianity. She holds a stewardship role as an advisory board member of Omnia Institute, an international organization dedicated to grassroots interreligious peacemaking work in several sites of conflict. Wow. That's a lot. Uh, <laughs> congratulations. That's a, no, seriously, that's, I used to live Thank in Maryland. You. So that, that was the, the shout out to Johns Hopkins thing. It was like a little bit of my, little bit of my Maryland roots. So. Cool. Happy to see you. Welcome to the uh, welcome to the podcast. How are you tonight? I'm doing well. Thank you both for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, I I don't live in Maryland anymore. Sadly, I live in Texas, where it is is less interesting and also hotter. But I digress. Where are, are you? Where are you in the world these days? You you kind of live all over. Yeah, I live in Singapore, but at the moment awesome. I'm in Northern Michigan. 
So, and I was just in Texas. I was in San Antonio and Toronto. So I, I float around a bit yeah. uh, when I'm not teaching. So that's yeah. awesome. I do love San Antonio. I do have to say, I, I was joking about that. I do like Texas. San Antonio is one of my favorite places. Nice. Uh, almost as cool as Austin, but Northern Michigan, I have not spent very much time there. A little bit of time in Michigan, but it's nice that, that you, uh, that you get around. So I appreciate you coming. If you wouldn't mind, um, I know we read your bio, but that's a lot of factual stuff. So, yeah. um, if you wouldn't mind maybe just giving us a little bit of, a little bit more about you and maybe kind of like where you are. And uh, this is a, ostensibly like we usually say, it is a faith based or at least we a, a podcast that deals with faith and faith issues. So kind of where you sit in that arena would be interesting for us. Great. Th- thanks so much for the question. So I grew up in the US, uh, but I'm kind of, I'm quite bicultural. My parents are from India, so I'm second generation Indian American. And I would often go back to India every uh, two or three years and spend the summer there with family. So I was really bicultural, um, but I grew up in Northern Michigan where you don't have a lot of Indian, much of an Indian community at all. And I grew up Hindu, but kind of a secular Hindu, sort of in between. We would pray and do rituals and so forth. But I'd also, my mom and I also went to an evangelical Christian church sometimes um, as we were sort of incorporated as kind of family-ish by a, a Baptist family that we're still friends with today. And, you know, there was some separation at some point from the broader network um, when th- there was some discussion of like, oh, relatives who don't believe in Jesus will go to hell. And this, it, this really bothered me. It kind of really grated at me. But there was a moment when I had uh, actually out of fear, I think, <laughs> uh, was kind of drawn into taking Jesus into my heart, not being able to see someone who I had lost, a, a loved one who I lost when someone was kind of evangelizing at me. And it really, it really unsettled me. But I also had a kind of difficulty with that. There's another part of the family history that's quite interesting that, that is quite complicated. And that's the family in India. And generations back um, in the 1900s, uh, my family was not especially high caste. We were of a lower caste, right? So at that time, there was a lot of rejection of Hinduism and, and certain strands of Hinduism. So at the time, people from within that caste either be- became atheist because they wanted to reject the oppression that caste ca- uh, casteism caused, the kinds of discrimination that that caused. Others converted to Christianity. There were others that converted to Buddhism and to Islam. And then there were reform movements within Hinduism. So fast forward, I had some family members that became really, uh, ancestors rather, that became really strongly atheist. Others that kind of chose a reform-oriented Hinduism. But in the 1990s, family members in India that that are quite close to my family, to my family in the U.S., some of them converted to Christianity and to Pentecostalism in specific. And that caused some kind of tension and quarrels between family in India and also family between India and U.S. Um, And those softened eventually, right? And so I think the place that I come from, I I kind of see myself as a religious experimenter. I wouldn't say I'm atheist or even agnostic. I'm more of an experimenter. In the book, I think I, or 
sometimes when I talk about it, I talk about myself as a pluralist. And, and that kind of idea of a pluralist is sort of being open, experimental, right? But in order to sort of really work with that pluralism and sort of also to think about teaching people tolerance, right? Here I am as a ethnic religious minority in the United States, um, where I don't have really a community as such uh, in, in the place where I grew up. I do have community, but it's all kind of spread out. But in the place where I grew up, I had to, I sort of, I think I was called to this idea of this possibility of these conflicts softening somehow, right? And how do people, more than tolerance, more than people just putting up with each other or me putting up with being a minority or being minoritized or being, you know, seen as less than or having to assimilate to be like others, right? I wanted to find a way to sort of work on myself to wait so that I wouldn't just be reactionary in response to the kind of evangelizing, the kind of intolerance, the kind of supremacist forms of religion or incorporation that that kind of dominant society insisted upon, right? It was kind of initially about, I think, you know, I didn't set out to do it that way, but I think that's the backstory uh, that makes up some of what I'm talking about when, I, when I'm writing about religious pluralism. Well, it's weird because within evangelical circles, that word pluralism is a, immediately a negative. Exactly. Right? I mean, yeah. and it has, yeah. and, and as I, as I wrestle with my faith in the last five years, especially, I see it less so. Like I see this, I see this path, and I don't know that I would call it pluralism necessarily, but it is a form of pluralism where I'm, 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 I'm forcing, I'm, I'm, I'm being forced to reckon with, you know, the truth and the beauty of other faiths other than my own. Especially when you imagine that that so much of what we ascribe to as as human beings is a is a matter of happenstance. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think my personality is such that had I been born in India, I'd be a pretty damn good Hindu, or a pretty you know, or I, I just think I, whatever you know, whatever whatever religion I had been born into would be the one that I would ascribe to, and somehow Christianity, in particular, uh, evangelical Christianity sets itself up as, as though, um, as though obviously we're the way, the truth and the life. It's the, it's this, it's this path and we've chosen well, <laughs> but you didn't, most of us didn't choose anything. We are just, you know, we're, we're as culturally Christian as anything. Um, and so, yeah, I, I like the idea of, of, of exploring those different paths, but for most of us, if you wouldn't do it, if you could do me a favor then, because I would say and I'm just guessing here, but I would guess that most people, most Americans' familiarity with Hinduism in particular is very, very superficial at best. I mean, I think we have a very, I think we have a, at best a caricature of an idea of what Hinduism even is. We see it lampooned on TV. You know, we see characters on, in TV shows. And so if you wouldn't mind, maybe a little, I don't know, maybe just a little bit better understanding of, of, of how complex that, that religious system is. Hinduism is uh, quite complex, uh, definitely, because um, it essentially means uh, religion of India, right? Of the place of that land, right? And so over like millennia, Hinduism has become many things because it's a polytheistic religion, has many deities, there's different forms of 
uh, worship different around different deities, um, sometimes around a chosen deity or a deity that chooses the person or that the fa- or the family chooses the deity. Sometimes that's this is a kind of a hereditary basis. Sometimes it's just based on affinity and circumstances. What what God attracts, what per- person. Uh, the way a person is attracted to a deity and, and vice versa. There's a way in which uh, the exchange between a deity and a person is a visual exchange. This idea of getting a blessing through darshan, or which means seeing, to sacred sight, right? Being seen and seeing the deity and being seen by the deity is an exchange of blessing, right? That it kind of creates this embrace. But there are other ways in which people become incorporated into, in, into Hinduism. I think my family, growing up here in the U.S., we held our attachment to Hinduism quite lightly. But there is a vast philosophical tradition associated with Hinduism, right? And um, and so often there is a tendency because there's a kind of demand for being modern, whatever that means, right? Often it means, uh, often it means. Uh, uh, that imposition of that idea of what modernity is often means a kind of ethical system. And in Christianity and, and the monotheistic religions, it means a single God or right, a single God or maybe a, tr- a Trinitarian God that's encompassed under one, right? And so often one hears Hindus trying to explain their faith as it's many gods, but it's all one. Right. It's all like one massive idea of a cosmos. And there is this idea that there is that sensibility that the idea of karma has a kind of the, the possibility of being reincarnated, um, that it is a vast cosmological system that's morally ruled. Right. But there are many deities that can intervene on behalf of the person. But at the end of the day, the possibility for sort of kind of upliftment or gro- growth or connection with the divine or connection with the cosmos or even the non-self to achieve that kind of higher, uh, almost transcendent self, that uh, that's fundamentally connected to the kind of growth that one wants to achieve and that that's a holistic system, right? So often Hindus will, I think in the US, have to try to explain it <laughs> and translate it into a kind of monotheistic frame. Um, but it's tremendously complex and it can be very different from di- for different groups and different castes and different kind of people of different socioeconomic backgrounds. So it's really a vast tradition, yeah. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it sounds like there'd be a broad spectrum then of people who adhere in various ways as well, right? Those who might be culturally or like, like, like hey, that's how I identify, but it might not be, I might not take that super, super seriously, it, although it is how I identify. Like a, like a lot of my Christian friends, I mean, they're Christian, but that means they might go to church a couple times a year. And you know, and if you ask them, they'll tell you. But beyond that, it doesn't impact their day-to-day in a, an entirely, you know, a large amount. But um, I don't know, I just, I just find it fascinating that that we would try to then, like we say, like you say, you have to kind of translate that into, okay, how how... How could I explain this to you so that a Western evangelical Christian mindset could maybe grasp it? Because I, I immediately went to, okay, well, many gods under, but ultimately one sounds like a godhead, like a, almost like a version of a triune god like we have in Christianity. This is okay, because, you know, we're all, oftentimes, you know, it feels very polytheistic. And he goes, no, 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 but, you know, it's, it's one god and, so you can say, well, one god and all these different expressions of that god. Exactly. Or all these yeah. different ways of, 
of, of interacting with that deity in specific ways might be this particular deity. You know, when I left the church, the Christian church, and I went out seeking and trying to find uh, something, because when I left the church, I felt like there was a hole, like something spiritual missing, right? So I wanted to fill that with something. So I, uh, and the writer in me, you know, I, I tried to read the Bhagavad Gita, and uh, the writer in me said, no publisher would ever publish this book because you introduce like 35 characters within like two chapters. And it was like super confusing, yeah. right? Because there's so many, there's so many characters introduced. But the one that I connected with most was Ganesha, uh, you know, the, 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 the bringer and remover of obstacles. Uh, and I, and, uh, I ended up doing, I working out a play that was called The Secret of Ganesh. I believe that was the name of the title. And, uh, and so I was able to, as a sound designer, get to bring in because they wanted, you know, they wanted to make it feel like they were in India. But I was like, but yeah, but India has so much culture other than what you think of as Indian music, right? So I brought in contemporary Indian music into this play that we did. So I used uh, like Bollywood music, right? And all of that. And so it was a very awesome connection into the world of India for me. But then I reached, you know, then I reached into Buddhism and Buddhism for me was a, a much stronger, I had a much stronger connection with Buddhism. And so that's one of the reasons why your book was so enticing, right? This idea of a majority religion, this religion of Buddhism within Sri Lanka being the majority religion, dealing with a minority religion, which was Christianity. Whereas in America, we have the Christian religion, which is the majority religion, dealing with the minority religions that have, that have popped up, right? Even though yeah. they, some of them have always been here, but we want to pretend like we've always been a Christian, uh, Christian country. Right. And I don't, I would, I would assume that in a lot of ways, Sri Lanka is the, is same, is the same, right? That, uh, they've always been Buddhist. And then these other, con- these other religions have kind of tried to us- usurp them and take over. And like we talked off, uh, before we started recording, I had never heard the phrase Buddhist nationalist. And it seems almost like an oxymoron to me. Um, yeah. because of my, you know, my connection to Buddhism and how they're, they're very passive. And what, when I hear the word nationalist, I, I connected to Christian nationalist, which is usually a very violent version of Christianity, right? So what, what enticed you to even want to write this book about this, this connection between Christian, the Christian evangelicals, which is the minority religion within Sri Lanka, uh, and it's, it's connection or, uh, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what a better word is, the, the abrasiveness between these two religions, right? So Buddhist nationalism is, uh, yeah, a phenomenon that you see in various parts of Asia where there, it's a majority religion, but, uh, and you, you see Hindu nationalism in India as well, and they have a s- similar kind of, formations and formulations as, as Christian nationalism with obviously with different content. And so what's one thing we have to sort of think about with respect to my book, uh, Karma and Grace, I'm talking about the new arrival of Pentecostalism since roughly the 1970s. It had been around in Sri Lanka even earlier, but there were smaller covenant communities that were sort of more insular and not really proselytizing, not evangelizing. Um, And in the 70s, 80s, 90s, what is called third wave Pentecostalism 
became more prominent. And I'll explain that with third wave Pentecostalism in, in a second. But before that, long before that, Sri Lanka had been colonized or had been exposed to different levels, degrees of imperialism and colonization for about 400 years, right? So when Buddhism, in, with that idea that Christianity and Christians uh, from various parts of Europe, they were first colonized uh, by the Portuguese Catholics and the Dutch Protestants, and then later by the British, right? Um, those different waves of colonialism introduced a lot of um, uh, kind of supremacist ideas about religion, right? Um, and reacting to that, in various contexts, you know, um, not only uh, there's a kind of complex relationship between uh, the Buddhist, the sense that this is a Buddhist country, uh, that the Sri Lanka is a Buddhist country, because essentially um, there were Buddhist kings that were trying to say that their sovereignty or their rule is authorized by their connection to the Buddha's Dharma, right? The Buddha's teachings and to the Buddha's relics, the like material trace of his being in the world, right? Though he's gone. Um, and I can explain more of that if you have questions about that. But so basically that's a lot of that is a reaction and reactionary response as a majority saying we need to protect our religion because of all of the sort of uh, material privileges that Christianity has come with over these various waves of Christianity, right? Do you think that's a, a bit emblematic, though, too, of any religion that becomes a majority religion, that, that they become protective and suddenly they... they they begin to be fearful of, of negative, what they might be, what they would perceive as negative influences, like maybe despoiling, you know, hey, this is our, this is our pure Buddhist culture and you're coming in with this, these foreign religions. Right. Cause I feel like that's, that's, I feel like that's a big deal in the United States where the majority white evangelical Christian church feels threatened and is, is concerned about preserving their status as the majority. And so they seems like they push back against. Does that make, is that, is that sort of just a similar symptom you think? Definitely. I, but I think that also in the context of Sri Lanka, the context of India for all, as well, where there's nationalism, the numbers are really small, right? And um, that there have been people who've argued that this is a fear of small numbers, uh, right? And, and, um, and in that idea, there's, there's in Sri Lanka, because it, it had been in a condition of war for about 26 years. And, you know, the census and all of that population enumeration is just really, uh, not clear to people. What are the real demographics? So what people were seeing is that the growth of Pentecostalism it was rising, but it's not evident in the census, right? And, and, but, According to the census, it's very small numbers. And people don't always declare themselves outwardly because of concerns uh, for, for a number of reasons. They don't necessarily talk about the numbers of how many uh, Christians are there. Sometimes they'll embellish the numbers, right, to say, oh, we've gotten this many new converts. Other times they'll underplay it, right? So there's, there, uh, but the Buddhists will do similar sorts of things, right? I think that there's a, so there's there's definitely parallels the majoritarian populism like you see in the United States 
it's certainly replicated in different ways and different contexts. And it's, it's actually, I mean, this has been going on for a while in places like Sri Lanka and the post-colonial Sri Lanka, post-colonial India, but you see different kinds of majoritarian populism popping up all over the world right now in this really intense way, in a very scary way. And yeah, um, I think there's probably a number of factors and I'm, I'm, that's the broader comparative question is not exactly my area of expertise, but I do think that something to do with the economy and the way that the economy is working is creating this sense of alarm and alarmism among majorities. That's not rooted in reality necessarily, but um, there is that kind of uh, often paranoia about minorities growing in that way. So yeah, I do think, I, I don't use the term in the book because it's quite complicated in the context of Sri Lanka. One could say it's a paranoid nationalism. You could see that in the US, you can see it in various contexts, right? Um, that populism is that kind of, it fuels that paranoia, right? And how does that work out? And that's one of the questions I'm interested in. And I think with the context of Christianity is that they have been in these sparring matches around kind of their theologies, right? Their, their very idea of what is good and in, in the world and how to achieve that good is completely different, right? And so one of the things I'm arguing in the book is to say that with Christianity and with the idea of God's grace, right? God's grace, especially in Pentecostalism, there's this sense that God's grace flows very quickly and easily to people and they can receive grace. And uh, I'm not sure which kinds of churches you were in, but um, with talking in tongues, right? There's a sense that they're being sanctified and it's really emotionally cathartic for people, right? And, and, and so that's really real to people who do feel called and drawn to Christianity. Uh, I, for me, what the issue is, is the, the, the discourse or the rhetoric that makes it so exclusive and exclusionary, what it means and what it means about other religions being right or wrong, right? And so at one point I say in the book that sometimes, right, people who are taken up by the enchantments of the charism or the idea of, the, of God's grace, right, sometimes those exclusionary that exclusionary language falls on deaf ears because people are entranced, they're enraptured, right? They're kind of taken up by the charism. So for me, I feel like there might be possibility and there is, there is possibility. It's just that it's not very common because it's not coming through the church because the church is very often talking about Christian spiritual warfare or needing to use that kind of militancy to say, this is the singular form of religion that that is uh, right and true and good, right? Um, and Buddhists at various points of time have become really strongly agitated against that. Um, and, you know, they do sometimes attack prayer halls or, you know, torch them, uh, you know, they... And so that that claim by Christians, and this happens very commonly, they, there's a Christian evangelical discourse about a universal persecuted church, right? And this idea that you have to pray for the persecuted church. I'm kind of invoking some of the literature, the academic literature on this too. Um, this this idea of martyrdom that sort of 
embedded in this idea that the Apostle Paul was a persecutor and turned away from persecute, turned towards God and turned away and invited persecution by saying, we have to evangelize and set things right for God. We have to sacrifice ourselves to God, right? And so that's a, a conundrum in the world because what happens in places like Sri Lanka, where the violence can be very real, right? The violence by Buddhists towards Christians can be real, toward, by Hindu nationalists too, and other places, that can be very real. So how do we grapple with that is very complicated. Uh, and, and, you know, so that's why I don't take a position either way that like either one of these faith practices or, or, or politicized trajectories of Buddhists or Christians, protect Buddhist protectionists and nationalists or even evangelical modes are, are right because I think neither of them are doing right by a pluralistic formation. Right? For me, I would say one of the issues I have specifically with Christianity is we've uh, Christianity and I can, I can say we, because this is what I was raised in have always been evangelical. We have always been, we want to spread the good news, right? right. We are called to do that, right? right? Right. Whereas I don't see that in Hinduism. I don't see that in Buddhism, right? Uh, right. They, aren't, they aren't out there on street corners trying to convert people. So there's this, there's this strong history of damage done by Christians. We can go back to the Crusades. So with this knowledge of what Christians do when they step into a country, I, I don't want to say I want to forgive other other people for, for using violence because I am I am a pacifist. I, I feel like nonviolence is the right way, but there's part of me that says same thing with like the civil rights movement in the United States, right? There's part of me that says sometimes you just got to be louder. Do you see any kind of evangelical movement from like say the Buddhists or the Hindus? trying to like push the Christians out of these countries or is this something that's not part of their culture? Yeah, it is. It is happening. It is happening. So uh, the reason that I wrote this book was that, you know, I was sitting at my desk in Baltimore years ago and I saw in 2004, there was an effort by Buddhist, Buddhist monks who were elected to Sri Lanka's parliament who sought to ban what they were calling unethical unethical religious conversions, right? So I was like, what does that mean? What does it mean for a conversion to be ethical or unethical, right? And one of those things was that this, this idea that, um, that, so the debate, the dispute came out around things like charity, right? Um, Christians do, trying to do good by giving to the poor, Right. Traditionally, Buddhism hasn't been about. Uh, okay, so uh, let, let me back up for a second. Um, but essentially, Buddhists and Christians have been, or Christians and Buddhists have been, kind of calling each other's religion selfish for a really long time. And essentially, what happened was Christian missionaries seeing the way that Buddhist monks were treated by the lay people, basically poor, uh, well, lay people, Buddhist lay people who were not ordained, would give food, give alms, uh, and and gave basically charity to monks who were mendicants, right? Who were 
ascetics. And so the missionaries saw this and were shocked and said, what a selfish religion. Why are these monks um, voluntarily poor and relying on poor people to feed them and clothe them and house them, right? Um, giving their money over while Christians, especially coming from the global North, right? During the colonial period saw everyone and everyone looked poor to them, right? So they said, why are they so selfish? We'll give charity, but not even realizing how extractive colonialism was and creating some of the very poverty that they were seeing, right? But there was this sense of there are these global inequalities. We have to address them. It wasn't about a structural change. But they were saying, okay, how do we fix this? The band-aid of charity being some kind of do-gooding practice, right? Meanwhile, the Buddhists would would be really agitated and frustrated to hear that Christian missionaries were saying that their religious religion was selfish when these are kind of long-standing practices of patronage where there's a lot of interesting and important kinds of exchange, social exchange between the lay people in terms of teaching, this idea of merit and good karma, creation of good karma. So that really um, was something as well that really needled at the, 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 the Buddhists. Um, and, but in, in the context of India, where a lot of the conversions have happened on the basis of caste, right? Lower caste people who've been socially oppressed essentially converted away from Hinduism, rejecting it, saying, we won't... Of course, there were some reform forms of Hindu- Hinduism that that uh, accommodated lower castes as well. But basically, in that turn away, Hindu nationalists more recently in the last couple of decades have tried to reconvert Christians, right? There have been campaigns to reconvert Christians because they were rightfully, supposedly rightfully uh, Christian, and that caused tension as well, right? So th- it's not... It's not a straightforward, my answer is not a very straightforward, but it has gone both ways, yeah. Yeah, so it's not like this linear path, you know, for me. Like, so how I see it is, like, Christianity is by its nature expansionist. Like, that's written into our text. Um, we have that in common with Islam, right? I mean, certain breeds, certain certain brands of, of forms of Islam are expansionist. They are mandated to convert the world. We're supposed to go out and Christians are... I mean, Jesus's great commission is go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? So, but I don't know that I, I've never sensed that about either Buddhism or Hinduism, that they were expansionist in that way. So more, this seems more like protectionist, like, hey, this is who we are, this is our culture, and we have to preserve this. And I have wondered, because a lot of times it seems like Christian charity, especially in, in outside of the U.S., in places like India, does always seem to come with all kinds of strings attached. I mean, it's, it seems very, very seldom is it just out of the goodness of our own hearts we're going to come and help alleviate suffering. It's always going to be, well, this is a backdoor into being able to proselytize and being able to, you know, get you out of these pagan religions and bring you into the light, right? So it's not, you know, so I could see that as being, if I if I was in the majority Buddhist or, or Hindu culture, that sounds insulting as hell to me. Like you're going to come and under the auspices of charity and goodness, but that's not really your ultimate intention. Like your intentions aren't pure hearted, right? I mean, your intentions are to, to offer this, this assistance and then also try to lure our people away and into your, into, into your culture. But 
that's that's absolutely how the Buddhist uh, Buddhist nationalists and the, and the Hindu nationalists feel about it. But again, uh, then it's a bit more compli- complicated in the Indian context because of the caste issue. Do you think that, say, for example, here's here's what I'm thinking. Tell me if I'm wrong. I'm, I, but for me, it seems like Pentecostalism in particular um, is is more attractive in those parts of the world, partly because of its of its of its egalitarian message. So, I mean, even in even though in, even though in practice we're not really, but at least in on message. Christianity seems to level the playing field. Like, like, you know, right, and, but also Pentecostal experience seems to have more in common with, say, say Hinduism, which, which has these sort of ecstatic practices at times. And so there's this, there is this sort of this, this hyper sense of spirituality and this very real presence of the, of the demonic and the, you know, it, I don't know that it doesn't seem like, like your, like your average sort of, Southern Baptist is going to do well in a culture that embraces that kind of spirituality, but they might find more common ground with with the charismatics. Is that is that fair? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think th- I think that's absolutely right. Um, the kind of charismatic form, yeah, definitely speaks to people that have more of that. Especially in Hinduism, Buddhism has tended to be uh, tended towards a quietude, right? A, a, a stillness and a quietude, a focus, a different way of focusing on the breath than the pneumatic Pentecostal form, right? It, the prana is kind of different from pneuma. But there are, uh, especially among Buddhists of lower socioeconomic classes, they have tended to to be drawn to more ecstatic forms of Buddhism that might have more in common with Hinduism, in fact. Uh, and, and there is spirit possession. There is uh, things like what looks like talking in tongues, which then automatically the Pentecostals will say, oh, that's the devil in them, right? But the the, the spiritual agents within the hierarchy of local Buddhism in Sri Lanka are not ultimately evil in the same way as in Christianity would, would call them as diabolical. They're just, they're just beings that might be a little malevolent because they have bad karma. But if you, if you sort of not exercise them as in like expel them or, or get rid of them, vanquish them once and for all, but like push them out uh, through some kind of healing ritual. The, the patient can be free of that. And then the agent that is possessing that person can basically be, merit can be transferred to them. So they can they can be, if you do good work, make good karma, you can make merit and transfer it and hope that they'll be reborn into a better lifetime rather than in this like bad spiritual realm. So there's this really complex relationship to the spirits and and so forth. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. No, that's 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 very interesting. Well, something else you bring you bring up in the book is this idea that one of the things that is enticing within Christianity, specifically with karma and merit, is that uh Christianity comes along and says, "No, by grace you are absolved of your past." Right? So right. whereas right. within karma you are trying to create a situation where when you are reincarnated, you re, you are, you move up, right? You, you want to move up within the, um, within the, uh, closer and closer to enlightenment. Christianity comes along and says, right. you know, you don't need exactly. to do that. Just say this prayer and you're good. 
Right. You ask Jesus into your heart, and then all yeah. that crap that you yeah. did for however millennia no longer matters. So I can see where that's enticing, right? Oh, and I oh, can yeah. see I can also see where like the Buddhist nationalists say that's kind of like that's kind of like a bait and switch. Right? Because if if we are if if within our religion this is we have to create a, a situation where we we become a better per- version of ourselves and now all of a sudden someone's coming and say you know you don't need to worry about any of that. You just need to you need to ask Jesus to your heart, you're absolved of all that and then you 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 get to Pass go collect two hundred dollars and you're you're in, and yeah. I can right and I can see <laughs> where one it's enticing right to specific groups of people who are like I I just need out of this I need out of this 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 conundrum I'm in, and I can also see where they're like, but that's not how this works. <laughs> you're taking a shortcut, exactly. Al. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, my my curiosity is then that sort of like anthropologically speaking, like is there is there a sense is there a fear that that this undermines an entire culture, like this like this sort of cheap grace like all this forgiven thing moves in and all of a sudden you lose that identity as a people, and you say okay now you're actually threatening not just you know a superficial religious experience you're actually like threatening um, an entire culture at many different layers. So, so I, I can kind of see the I can kind of see the point of being concerned about that. I mean, maybe not to the point of perpetrating violence, but I can see the I, I think there's a legitimate concern there. Would you I mean do, do you agree that there's that some of that concern is at least legitimate? Absolutely, absolutely. And so what you're both saying really resonates and I think it's a great reading of the book and I appreciate that. It's glad, I'm glad that it's uh, it, it spoke to you on some level. And not to your point earlier uh, about Pentecostalism as having this egalitarian frame, right? That it's kind of like the experience of tongues can be a democratic one. It can grace anyone, right? It can reach anyone and it doesn't have to be mediated through a pastor or or through a priest right it can be it can be direct live right and that idea of the presence and the closeness and the proximity of christ right definitely has that kind of possibility for egalitarianism and there's a book um i was just reading about it and i need to read it more carefully called black pentecostal breath which talks about that azusa street revival from the early 1900s in los angeles is that the the in the black church it really was egalitarian it was really enlivening and it was about a transformation of Christianity, right? What's complicated though is precisely because it is so, it has moved and it has moved uh, among co- communities of color throughout throughout the world, Asia, Africa, etc. And it's not clear if which line that is. Is it egalitarian, right? Um, but often they claim the, the Pentecostalist rhetoric is about making a complete break from the past, right? So to sever connections, uh, exactly what you're saying, this idea of severing a connection to heritage. And what does that do then, uh, as you said, to the culture, to the sense of heritage, um, et cetera? And I think that is precisely the concern, right? So is that egalitarianism real for one thing is a question that I'm always asking because it sort of has it Pentecostalism has sort of attached itself also in in these 
context to this idea of upward mobility and not uh, out of redistribution of wealth, but just pray and you'll, you'll get God's grace and you'll have access and you'll, you'll have that upward mobility. Right. But then what about the poor and, and the real, the real concerns about making change that would actually enable and the uh, upliftment from the poor. That's why I, for me, like in practice, it, it always, it rarely seems to work out that way. Um, uh, in message, the, the gospel is, it is one where, you know, we say things like everyone is, you know, at the foot of the cross, everyone's equal. You know, there is, you know, this, so we, we sort of, you know, we do what we do well in the West and we looked at our nose at something like a caste system because it ruffles against our sensibilities of, well, that's not the way that our religion teaches that all everyone's equal, although we've spent an entire history proving that we don't actually believe that. <laughs> we, you know, all are equal unless, of course, you know, we decide to enslave you or genocide you or colonize you or do whatever else we do. But at least on message, you know, I can see, I can see the attraction. If I was, if I was living in a country where there was no possibility of, of upward mobility and someone comes along with this message of, of actually, no, in, inside of this system, you have every bit as much merit as the, as, as anybody else. I could see the attraction of that. Um, even if it's never actually realized. You, you also mentioned, I, I, I believe it, at least one, I, I remember reading it, something, uh, you mentioned about the prosperity gospel. Uh, and that is, you know, specifically within a, a culture that is considered what the, either has a caste system. So there is a, uh, a lower poor class. I mean, same thing in America though, right? I mean, we have our lower class. So prosperity gospel seems to work towards connecting to the lower class. As if you, if you, if you step out of the system that your culture says is the right one and you step into this system and you pray hard enough, you believe hard enough, you can, yeah, and you tithe enough and all that, that God will, God will raise you up by your proverbial bootstraps, right? Yeah. Well, um, so just uh, one point of clarification, and in, in, I'm pointing out that in Sri Lanka, caste is not so strong as it is in, it's there, but it's not so strong. But there is poverty, right? And absolutely, I think all of what you're saying really strongly resonates with what I'm pointing out. At the same time, you do have the sense of um, that there are people who are very upwardly mobile and they are Pentecostal, they are, you know, uh, or or uh, Protestant and and or Catholic, in places like Sri Lanka, right? You see it very commonly also in Singapore, where I work. So that idea that prosperity, it's it's like once one has prosperity, one has affluence, they wear it as on like signs on their body, like they that they've achieved grace, right? And so I've seen this where. Very poor women will follow a, a, a Pentecostal minister and he, he rolls in with a new car every week. And, you know, it's like a, the, the church is like a corrugated tin roof. And, um, you know, it's like a kind of semi outdoors, but protected from the elements. And when his car rolls in, relatively poor women follow behind and collect the dirt from the tracks of his of uh, of his car and put it in a in a bottle and they take it home and it's they say that if you put that sand at the threshold of your house or plant 
plant it in your garden, you'll gain some of that grace, right? So grace is somehow material, right? It, it becomes material. The Holy Spirit materializes in a way and it, it's embodied, right? So there is that strong sense that there's like a touch base, a, a, a basis for that. But there's a, I mean, that, that there's a history of that inside of certain Pentecostal movements and especially those that espouse a, 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 a type of prosperity gospel. I've seen, I've seen televangelists on TV selling handkerchiefs that they've touched and yeah. transferred their yeah. anointing for gaining wealth exactly. onto that piece exactly. of material and then selling it on, you know. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's disgusting. <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's predatory at its, at its, you know, at its, at its roots. But I mean, it, it is absolutely something that is, I would say common, but, but is, is, I mean, I've seen it. I've seen it myself. So that doesn't, that, that's maybe on, on its face. That sounds crazy, except it's, it's, it, it's no crazier than, Selling somebody a sweaty hanky and saying, "Well, you know, the anointing of God was in that prophet's sweat, and he put it on." The, uh, you can have it for a, a love gift of a hundred dollars and just send it in. You know, my my question then would be, and because I obviously within like places like Sri Lanka, there are there are upper class Buddhists, right? People who are uh, and like you talk about uh, Buddhists within government, Buddhists within like you know, higher, but I don't. Do they do they do anything similar? Because I don't really see that, or maybe I'm just blind to that. I mean, do they have similar like callings where people follow them, hoping to get some of their? It's not grace at this point. I don't know what you would call it. Uh, just like another step towards enlightenment. You know, being closer to the the, the Buddha, or or do they consider them a bodhisattva? Uh, is there anything like that? So uh, there was a lot of uh, right after the war in Sri Lanka. The war in Sri Lanka went on for about 26 years between two ethnic groups, uh, the, the Sri Lankan um, majority, Sinhalese Buddhists, Buddhists and um, the LTT, which was a militant group calling for separation. And it, at the end of the war, they used military means rather than trying to negotiate a settlement um, and it killed lots of civilians kind of like what we're seeing right now. Um, and, and that kind of militarized idea, there was, there had been a long period of where Buddhist monks were saying, you have to use military means because you can't negotiate with, with these terrorists. They're using a lot of the right wing tactics that you see here. Right. And what happened with that end of the war with the then president, when he, used the military means and he was seen as a sovereign, like a symbolic sovereign, a king in line with the great emperors, Buddhist emperors that protected Buddhism in previous eras, right? So there was this idea of Buddhism as a civilization, it's protecting its civil civilizational and karmic inheritances, right? And that proximity to that will allow him in his future birth, some would say, to become reborn as a, a bodhisattva or somewhere close to becoming near, near at hand to the Buddha. So he'll gain enlightenment uh, upon um, hearing the Buddha's Dharma, right? And so that idea that, that there is that kind of ascendance that can kind of create a political person, persona that in, intensifies that nationalism in a way. 
so that's certainly there. Um, there is, so it's often more about political clout. It can be about economic clout as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so much good stuff. Yeah. There, it really is. It's such an interesting, I do, I, I do like the, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm always just a fan of juxtaposition. So I like the juxtaposition of, of grace and karma. Um, but also this, this, this juxtaposition of this sort of form of charismatic Christianity with, uh, the indigenous religion. Um, so is, is this something that is, I mean, do you feel like it's progressing and becoming more violent? Uh, are the, are the animosities becoming greater or is it, is it something that you feel like is hopefully, you know, something that can be worked out? Uh, I think there's a few different ways I could answer that. Um, it, it, it's, it ebbs and flows and with Buddhist nationalism, the kind of target has shifted a little bit. Um, there's been a more intensified Islamophobia, um, since around 2011. Um, and that was happening it kind of so that uh, the target shifted and, um, subsequently at they have Buddhists have been sort of targeting Muslims saying that they were becoming more radicalized, supposedly saying that there was more influence from the Middle East into Sri Lanka and that was creating this radicalization. Then some in 2019, there was uh, the bombings on Easter Sunday, right? And that happened um, and it was targeting several secular sites and also some religious sites, Christian sites. And so there was a big to-do hunt for who the culprits were. They were saying it was a terrorist cell connected to ISIS. Subsequently, there have been there have been reports that it was actually government funded. <laughs> that sounds very conspiratorial, but uh, there there have you know news that was the it, there wasn't a clear evidence that it was who they said it was, and it sounds like there was some networking, that they wanted to securitize Sri Lanka in a way um, that that just, they, they allowed this to happen or facilitate its happening. And it became, it was much more violent and, it, you know, the, the, the bombings were much more intensive than they had imagined, but essentially it enabled them to securitize, right? Like these states tend to be wanting to repurpose their militaries, right? And after the war and, uh, you know, so it's, it sounds like conspiracy theory, but I, I do think that some of that news is broken in The Guardian and all of that. So that's there as well. Um, so that's one piece of it. So the target shifted, that part of it. Um, but there have been new concerns about a, um, a Pentecostal faith healer um, and attacks on him and both rhetorical attacks, but also sometimes they're occasional physical attacks. But I think you wanted to know a little bit about what are the possibilities for connection, um, reconciliation. Commonality, any kind of, yeah, sure. So, and, and you, you mentioned this, John, that you felt that, uh, and I think you too, Nat, that it seems as though inherently within Christianity that there is this kind of demand for proselytizing and that's essential uh, within Christianity. And I have interlocutors, I have friends in, in Sri Lanka who are uh, Jesuit minister, uh, sorry, Jesuit priests who and other kinds of thinkers who are ecumenical in their orientation 
to religion. And they, they would disagree with that point, or they would argue that that is a mistranslation from Hebrew into, I think, into Hebrew to Latin. And the, there's a lot of mistranslation that the Great Commission actually is not about proselytizing as, as such, but rather about spreading grace in a more humanistic way and not in an exclusivist way. And, and so I'm, I'm really taken by that and that form of Christian ecumenical, that ecumenical movement and what they have to say about it. They're, that's another part of my study. And they have been vilified by the Vatican during during the Cold War, calling it communist, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a really f- fascinating way in which they are really committed to not proselytizing. And their way of engaging Christianity is about inter- interreligious dialogue and so forth. Um, the other thing is that even after the bombings and some of my, at the village level and, at, you know, kind of an everyday observations that I've made, there's much more of a, negotiated every day dealing with difference, right? Um, so for example, when I, I mentioned that there's like conflicts over religious giving, right? And some of those problems are kind of intractable. They just won't go away. And what I found is that sometimes there was a one village that I, that I worked in, that I did research in, and there was a a woman who described violence from the 1990s on her Pentecostal, basically a house church. They were having a prayer, prayer meeting. And, uh, the, the Buddhist monk in that village, um, with a bunch of other people came and attacked and uh, attacked the, their house and threw stones and swore at them and told them to get out and stop, stop praying and stop evangelizing, right? Stop trying to spread the news. And um, so they were, those Christians were a bit traumatized, right? And, you know, 20 years later, they remembered it. But the woman that I spoke to, she had been married, she was married to a Buddhist. And she made sure that her family's household continued to give alms uh, and food to the, the church. And eventually she made peace with the temple, right? With the monk and, and, and the, the monk eventually accepted her, you know, they're not the best of friends, but they keep the peace. Right. And so I think for me in, in the book, I talk about what I call agonistic pluralism. It's a kind of neither here nor there of, of, um, sorry, uh, let me take that back. Not, um, it's, it's not uh kind of let's all get along, nor is it total hostility. It's something in between. Right. And, They've had to negotiate that and work that out. So it's a more complicated relationship to just harmony or just or or outright violence. There's something in between. And and they're living with those tensions and negotiating them. And even after the bombings, I think some of my friends in the village were saying, Oh, look, we you know, we've we've known these Muslim neighbors for for decades, they're friends, we know them, you know, they're not a problem. So it wasn't, even though there was a, a upper level at the state level, at the kind of level of popular discourse, they weren't allowing that to seep in. So I think there were some of those everyday ways. And then I would just add what, one more thing is that um, I do work with a interreligious 
group called Omnia uh, Interfaith Peacemakers, and they they do amazing work um, in places like Sri Lanka, but they've even worked in areas where Boko Haram has been in in Nigeria, um, and they have done a lot of peacemaking work among you know, in the context of Nigeria, among Muslims and Christians to get people to work together collaborative, co- collaboratively on projects so that when something happens as violent, you know, more of the more extremist violence of Boko Haram, that when, um, that that doesn't allow or trigger a broader violence, right? And so there are ways in which people are doing some of that peace work, which I find really heartening. And they're working a bit in the U.S. too, which I find um, really important in this moment of like extreme polarization, right? Being raised in the Christian faith, I would say that I, I think you have to lay at the lay a lot of this problem at the feet of these religions that do proselytize, that are looking at pushing into other other countries and push their religion out. So I would I would put most of this violence at the feet of Christian nationalists, Islamic nationalists, Zionists. You don't you don't you 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 have a hit we have a history of moving our faith with violence first and and then trying to sort out what's left. Uh, so I, I mean, I, I, I hate to see any, any religion become violent, but I can see why, you know, these, some of these religions that we consider more passive, be it Hindu or, or Buddhist, uh, that they do at some point, uh, or Native American, the Native American, Native American religions within our country, uh, that they, they get their backs against the wall and they end up having to push back. And I think it is in our best interests of these groups that do push our religion on other countries to be some of the first to say, Hey, we've done this wrong for so long. How can we work with you in an ecumenical way? How can we, we all have to live on this planet together. And I think there's, we're at a point where it's like, I don't want to, I I personally, you know, I can only speak for me. I don't want to convert a Buddhist or a Hindu to Christianity. I don't want to do that anymore. I'd rather understand their connection to the divine and how we can understand each other and we can move forward and make our or make our world a better place. And I, and I hope that that's, that's, that's something that we can, do you see that? Do you see any connection between, like you said, the, uh, the Jesuits, I think that's what you said, the Jesuits. Do you see a place where we can do that? Is, is there hope where we can come out of this on the other end with a more peaceful understanding of each other? Yeah, for sure. I, I, I do think that, um, uh, it's not only the Jesuits. They, they are, are some of the leaders. Um, you find different Catholic nuns. You do see sometimes Protestants. I have heard Pentecostals say that they, they don't do interreligious relations very well. Right. And having said that, I, you know, I, I mentioned that again. I'll bring this up again, that idea that, um, sometimes the enchantments of the charism can, uh, um, that kind of there people become so enraptured and enchanted by what the charism is doing right to entrance and enchant a person that the rhetoric can fall on deaf ears because ears made deaf by that charism right so for me i feel like there is possibility 
but it would require the the churches the institutional leadership often to like step back from that from that kind of proselytizing um it would it would require the the buddhists also and i, and I document a couple of some cases of that of buddhists feeling at moments offended but but recognizing that they have friends on the other side that they don't don't react in the way and find alternate workarounds right um so there are there are small ways that I document in the book. I do think more programmatic ways should be should be kind of available to people. I noticed that in the context of Singapore, where I re- do my research, but I also teach. I have a, a, I, fa- I teach a class on Christianities and cross cultural perspective, um, an anthropology course, and a lot. I have some students who are Christian, who others who are atheists or agnostic. And a lot of my Christian students, I think, feel really disenchanted by the fact that the forms of Christianity that are available to them in Singapore are very conservative in evangelical forms. And they don't know where those liberal or kind of more open ecumenical forms are, right? And there's reasons for that. Right. And historical reasons for that in, in contexts of, uh, in Asia, in, in, in the U.S. and so forth. Right. How, how those have been edged out is, I think, really important to, to think about as well. Well, I think we see that in our own country here. Right. We see that the, the loudest voices within the Christian faith, unfortunately, are the more conservative, very bigoted, um, racist, homophobic, voices. And I don't even think they're the majority. I just think they're the loudest. And I think, you know, when you, you know, when you have your students who are like, I don't know where to find this ecumenical idea. And I, you know, I, you know, if I was there, I would like, I would challenge them. Okay. Well, then I think that's, you need to fill the void. You, you, you want that, right? You, you're searching for that. And maybe, maybe you are the answer. Uh, and I, I, I think that in the same thing with our country is like we are so tired of hearing these loud voices that we need to be the answer. We need to be the voice that says, yeah, they're loud, but they're wrong. And I think I would, I would, I would challenge the students in, in Singapore that you're talking to that, that, that that's the same thing. It's like, yeah, they're louder than you, but they're wrong. And you can step up and you can become that change. I mean, that's, I think that's, I think that's, that's what we need, right? I think this, and I, I look at it in my children, right? I see my children with way more knowledge and acceptance and availability towards people who are different than them. And I, you know, people are, are consistently discouraged by the next generation. I'm encouraged by the next generation. I see them as the ones who can save us, as the ones who can say, we can, for the lack, for lack of a better, you know, Larry King, or not Larry King. Who was the guy that said, can't we all get along? <laughs> you mean um, Rodney King? Rodney King, yeah. Yeah, Rodney uh, King. Larry After, King, Rodney I mean, King, like, they're about the same person. Yeah, really. yeah either one. <laughs> but, can't I mean, we all just get along, John? But I do, I do see that. I mean, I, I, you know, and I'm, I'm not trying to blow smoke. I really do see that in my children's generation as somebody, uh, people who are like more willing to look past difference to find the connection that makes us and that that we are we're human. We want we want love. We want respect. You know all the the basics that we want. And and I'm really encouraged by their ability to see through the BS. So that's that's my hope. 
<laughs> I think you're right. I think I agree with you. And I agree with you. We're all getting along. Well, it's, it's, it's a little sad that that's decried as sort of naivete and is belittled a little bit when we just say that, you know. Um, we just had a conversation with, with, uh, with another guest who, you know, the recurring thing was like, okay, what, well, like, maybe just one act of kindness, you know. How about we just, in it, in it, on its face, it sounds, you know, a bit naive, but the reality is, yeah, a lot of times that's, that's what it, that's what, that's what it calls for. You know, most of us don't have the ability to do something grand, but I can do something kind. And so these interfaith dialogues that we're talking about, we had a, a really, really amazing Muslim scholar on a while back named Sabi Kaskas, and we, you know, had great conversations about, okay, this intersection of these peace traditions within Christianity and Islam that need to come to the forefront. They need to get louder and drown out the extremist voices that demand their own way and who resort to violence when they're threatened. There's more common ground there than, than I think any of us realize. And so these kinds of, the kinds of books you're writing, um, the kinds of conversations that you're inspiring, I think are the most necessary. Like if, if we have any hope of, of finding common ground, you know, and I think that's, uh, so I applaud you for that. I appreciate the work that you're doing. I think it's very, very important. Thank you, and I applaud you. Well, we're, we're just a couple of middle-aged white guys doing the best we can. Uh, but uh, it's it's awesome yeah. that you're having these conversations. Oh, we we yeah we we love them. You know, I, as, as when we first started doing the podcast, we how how far into it were, were we? We're like, man, we've had like like all these guests. They're all like white evangelical Christians. We need to get some different people on here, man. Like there's there are different voices that we're not talking to. So we've made a very concerted effort to uh to bring in, you know, Native American voices and LGBT you know, LGBTQ voices and, you know, just let's let's broaden and expand our horizons. Let's let's get to know, you know, and at the end of the day, um I'm becoming more and more I'm guess I'm becoming less and less religious and more and more humanist. But I'm just going, well we have this this one this one characteristic that none of us can shake, which is that we're all human. Let's find some human common ground and figure out a way to not kill each other. Yeah. We also yeah. realize that, you know, we have a level of privilege that allows us to do this, right? We have, the, we have a level of privilege that we, that we can, because of who we are and how we look, we can say things and we can bring a, we, we can bring a light onto situations that are being ignored. And uh, you can either use your privilege to your own gain, or you can use your privilege to help other people. And I feel like Nat and I uh, decided that, yeah, we're going to use our privilege to shed light onto other other groups of people who, for all intents and purposes, sometimes don't have a voice. And so I think that's 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 vital and important, and we'll continue to do that. So the book, by the way, which we've mentioned a couple of times, I want to make sure we, we land on the book, Karma and Grace. It's a must read. I think it's, what I find fascinating is that, okay, it's, you know, it may sound like it's sort of isolated to what's happening in Sri Lanka, but the, the lessons that you're talking about, those things, they go way beyond, right? I mean, these are universal truths. They can be easily translated into any other milieu or, or paradigm. Um, I think there's a frightening amount of, of similarity between what's going on here in our country um, and what's going on. Sorry, because I just think it's a fairly universal theme. So, or what's or what's going on right now, uh, you know, within Palestine and Israel. Yeah, there's a lot of sad, sadly, sort of scary parallels there. But there's lessons there that I think we all need to to take to heart. So I appreciate the work that you're doing. 
um, not just with your book, but with your organizations and um, the efforts in peacemaking. I think all that is just, I uh, just, it, I appreciate it very, very much. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much. Uh, it was great to be here and really appreciate your conversation and the work that you're doing. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash this is not church, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.